Um, our next speaker, uh, again, we're so grateful today for the people who have come out on a Sunday morning to, to help patients, to listen to people, to give you information that you need. Uh, Dr. Hopkins uh, was really gracious in putting aside a, a family thing so that she could come and do this for us, and I know it's for us it will definitely be worthwhile. Uh, Dr. Hopkins is uh, a medical retina and electrophysiology specialist who's at the Retina Vitreous Associates Medical Group, uh, which is has multiple offices here in L.A. Um, she has a, an impressive uh, background, and I wanted to mention that in your packet there are the biographies of all of our speakers, and I'm not going to go into all of their credentials because there are way too many, <laughs> uh, but we really are fortunate to have this caliber of person uh, coming to talk to us. And what Dr. Hopkins is going to talk about is something that's important. I mean, you want to know why you got this disease, how it can be treated, and later on we'll be finding out what you can do to help your vision in terms of low vision devices, etc. But there are things that you may be able to do in your daily life that may make a difference to you. So here's a place where you can take charge of this disease. And that's what Dr. Hopkins is going to talk to us about. So welcome, please, Dr. Jill Hopkins. Thank you very much. Um, I do have a PowerPoint talk that we'll bring up, but I will, um, for those of you that don't see well, everything on the slides I will be speaking about verbally. We've given you a very juicy handout in there with uh, more information than you could ever want, likely. Uh, so don't worry as we go through about details. Everything is in that handout, and as I mentioned, I'll mention everything verbally that relates to what is on the slides. Um, and thank you very much to Discovery Eye for inviting me to give this. I enjoy giving this talk because it is really um, the meat of what we can do day to day. Dr. Small's talk set mine up very well because many of these lifestyle factors have been um, developed based on this epi epidemiologic or uh, association type research. And as we'll go through the talk, you'll probably leave feeling a bit confused on some of the risk factors because for some of them, for every study that has shown a protective effect, there may be another study to show no effect or perhaps a negative effect. So sometimes trying to sift through all that data becomes really complicated. So my goal in this talk is to give you an overview of the whole spectrum of what we can and can't change, uh, what the data looks like and what you can do day to day and, and what data is strong enough that we know we should definitely make those lifestyle modifications. As Judy mentioned, I'm at Retina Vitreous Associates. Uh, Dr. Boyer, one of my partners, will be speaking to you later this afternoon. Uh, and we have five offices around the L.A. area um, specializing in retinal disease. So in our overview, we're going to talk about the risk factors for AMD. And some we can't change. We're stuck with our gender for the most part. <laughs> we uh, can't change our age. Um, our genetics are pretty well set in stone as well in 2009. But there are many factors that we can change, and we'll talk about both of those. And we'll discuss the supporting data, as I mentioned. What do we know? How definite is the data? And then we'll talk about lifestyle. What should we do today? Again, in 2009, what will make a difference for our disease state? So a long list of things we can't change. Age is a big one um, and the most important risk factor. Family history, also important, and genetics um, right underneath that as those two are obviously very closely related, gender and race. And we'll discuss each of these in detail. There are a series of ocular factors we can't change either. Our refractive error or the type of glasses that we need may actually increase our risk. Uh, the color of our iris thought to be but actually not supported so much in data, but again, can't change that one. 
Um, the presence of cataracts and the need for cataract surgery, another important ocular risk factor that we'll talk about. And even the appearance of our optic nerve. I know we're going to speak about glaucoma uh, later today. But our optic nerve, the actual size of that, we call it the cup-to-disc ratio, has been shown to be a pretty important risk factor in glaucoma. So again, things that will be looked at when you have your eyes examined and discussed with you. Some we can't change, but it does mean to be more uh, strict with yourself about the other modifiable risk factors. Other risk factors we can change, smoking uh, and alcohol intake. Smoking, big, big, big risk factor. No doubt about that in the data, and we'll talk about it. No study has shown any good effect from smoking. Alcohol's a bit mixed, so don't panic. You don't have to put the wine bottle away completely. Um, antioxidants, vitamins, and minerals. Again, we'll talk about that quite a bit, but the age-related eye disease study, we have good, strong data uh, to support antioxidant use. Sunlight exposure, again, kind of mixed results, but an important one, especially living in Southern California. Uh, obesity and medication, another important um, area. Obesity, a big, big problem in our society. Um, not so much in this room, actually. Everyone looks fit and healthy, I'm pleased to say. But certainly in our kids, um, as we talk about modifiable risk factors, much greater risk of um, increased weight in children now. So all these things are important. Medications, again, certain medications we can't change. We need to take those for other health reasons. But as Dr. Small mentioned, the whole issue around statins and cholesterol, that type of thing, important, and we'll, we'll discuss that in detail. Um, cardiovascular diseases, we know there is an association between heart disease and AMD, so to control that. Diabetes, actually not such an association. Um, we'll talk about hormonal factors. Again, we can't change that too much, but we'll talk about that. And then the very important role of inflammatory factors as is unfolding as we learn more about the genetics and the way those genes impact on our retinas. So as we mentioned, the, the data, all of this data comes from um, several sources of research. And sometimes it's a large population study. And there are several of those in the eye world. So there's a Framingham eye study, Beaver Dam eye study. There's the Blue Mountain eye study in Australia. There's the Waterman study in Chesapeake Bay. Multiple, multiple studies where they've basically taken a population, taken a snapshot and said, what do we see about eye disease in this group of people at this time? And then they follow that forward. And then they give, as mentioned, association, so that people who had an extended period of time out in UV light may have a higher risk of AMD. That type of data comes from it. But it's not hard data. It doesn't mean if you have this, you will get this. It's an association. Um, Sometimes we have clinical trials, so so like the ARED study where they actually looked at treating people with antioxidants, compared that to people who were treated with a placebo. What were the rates like? What does that tell us? Um, and then sometimes you can just see an incidence of a disease. You may look in a population and say, is that higher in people who smoke or is it not? And then the evidence can be strong, it can be intermediate, it can be weak, or in some cases not at all conclusive. So we're always left trying to sift through that. And that's hard because the media will sometimes catch on to a new risk factor or a new study and make it sound as though, you know, eat X amount of fiber every day and you'll never have another health problem. When you actually go and look through, sift through that data, there are often many variables that that impact on that. So it's hard to know sometimes what to listen to, what to do. Do we run out and change everything we're doing or don't we? In general, don't. Um, there was a good question before asking about age and presence of AMD in Drusen. So um, when we look at the increase in age, so again, these are a couple of these large studies where they took a snapshot of people at different age groups. So the presence of macular degeneration in a group of 65-year-old people, about 2.5% of those people had AMD. When you hit 70, it went up to 6.7%. When it hit 75, up to 10.8%. Um, the Beaver Dam eye study actually found even a higher rate in the older age group, 
3.9% in the 43 to 54 year old group, 22.8% once you got older than 75. So definite, undeniable increased risk with age. And all studies have confirmed that. There's really no, um, no, uh, conflict in the data on, on age being the main uh, problem. And again, all of this is in your handout, so don't worry. There's no quiz at the end, but just to outline the, uh, the definite risk of age. Gender has been a little bit more um, complicated in terms of the data available to us. There is, in general, a feeling that women have a higher risk of getting macular degeneration, independent of the fact that we tend to live longer than men. So it's not just the age association. Um, and several studies didn't find a change um, in prevalence or incidence of AMD in women versus men, but several large population studies did um, quite significantly. So there was a, a large... Um, uh, study, actually three, four different ones now, including the AREDs, that show that women did have a higher risk for AMD. Again, not a modifiable risk factor unless you want to go to considerable effort <laughs> to change your gender. Probably not worth it. You can do other things instead. Um, our race and our ethnic group may also definitely influence um, our AMD, the type we get, the progression of the disease. Um, and we do see early age-related macular degeneration more commonly in African Americans and Hispanics, but late age-related maculopathy much more common in whites and non-Hispanic groups. So there tends to be a difference in the severity of the de disease based on, on race. Um, and this also supports a potential genetic uh, underpinning, that there may be something about our, our ethnicity, our race that's also genetically uh, predetermined. Um, overall, um, the rates for any type of AMD are fairly similar across different genetic groups, so about 5.4% in whites, 4.6% in Chinese, though the wet type is much more common in an Asian population. They get a very specific subtype of wet AMD. Um, it's often more difficult to treat. There are some new studies looking at ways to treat that specific subtype. Uh, about 4.2% in Hispanics and 2.4% African American. So compared with white subjects, overall the estimated rates are lower in African American but not Hispanics. So again, ethnic um, differences. Um, and some of these studies have shown that the overall rates are the same between men and women. So again, a little bit of uh, confound on the gender issue. Um, several studies have actually shown a, a weak but um, definite association between hyperopia. That's a refractive condition. We usually call it farsighted. But if you're hyperopic, you may have an increased risk of developing macular degeneration. Again, we really can't change that, but it suggests that there may be mechanisms, something structural um, that's a bit different about the hyperopic eye that may make it more susceptible to developing AMD. So again, interesting, just part of the, the package when you're getting your eyes examined to look at some of these risk factors and evaluate that with your eye care professional. So iris color, for a long, long, long time, there was a suggestion that lighter colored eyes were more likely to develop age-related macular disease. And that was kind of a commonly accepted um, factor. When we really look at the data, though, it's pretty inconclusive. We don't see a definite relationship between a lighter colored eye and, and getting AMD. In theory, though, um, an eye that has darker pigment, more ocular melanin, may be protected against um, things like UV light exposure. So there are theoretical reasons it may work, but we just haven't seen it borne out in... Um, in studies to date. So don't panic. If you have those beautiful blues, it's not a definite risk factor for AMD. 
Um, cataract, again, kind of a mixed thing. Cataract is the lens of the eye thickening and hardening over one's lifetime, and that happens to all of us. There's no question, again, as we age, that lens becomes thicker and cataracts develop. And again, the data regarding that is a little bit inconsistent. Some people said that, yes, independent of age, again, there was a, an increased um, likelihood of having AMD if you had a cataract. Other um, studies didn't bear that out. Uh, the Beaver Dam study thought that uh, early maculopathy may be associated with cataract, late not so much. So again, cataract is a, a modifiable risk factor in the sense that you can go ahead and have your cataract dealt with. Cataract surgery is a very um, well-performed, successful surgery. The real challenge when you have AMD is that there's been a lot of um, discussion and debate about, well, what does cataract surgery in and of itself do to my macular degeneration? Um, and it may be associated with an increased risk of advanced AMD. And again, the studies have been a bit inconclusive. One study says, no, we didn't find that relationship. Another study said, well, yes, we surely did. So there are a couple of things that may be important in having your natural lens in your eye. One is that our natural lens acts as a good UV blocker. Um, and it also may be that when we have cataract surgery, we're inducing some inflammatory changes via the surgical procedure itself that may then increase our rate. We think we're already dealing with a low-grade chronic inflammatory condition in our macula. We take the cataract out, the surgery may, may um, increase that. But again, the data is, is complicated to sort out. So I try and approach that question very individually with, with my patients. I think if, if someone has a dense cataract and pretty mild macular disease, and we know that we may improve your vision from 2200 to 2040 by getting your cataract out of there, that's probably worth the sort of inconclusive risk on that data. If, however, the cataract and the macula are, are both contributing equally to the vision, I don't encourage my patients to, to rush out and do it. If someone has only one eye um, that functions well, I tell them to really be cautious about considering cataract surgery there until we absolutely feel we have to, because um, it's a little bit uh, complicated. So we did in one study show that when the lens of the eye was removed, there was a two times increased risk of macular degeneration. Uh, the Beaver Dam study also showed that previous cataract surgery was associated with increased risk of uh, progression to late macular disease or advanced uh, AMD. The ARED study didn't show any increase. And again, that was one with about 6,000 people followed for a long period. So that was pretty strong data. They didn't show an increase in wet macular disease. But the atrophic or dry form may have shown some mild progression. So again, I think it's something you have to, to really address individually in your situation with your eye care professional. There are tests we can do prior to cataract surgery that give us um, a suggestion of what the potential acuity might be. And that's worth doing because sometimes if an eye is around 2060, so you're due, you have to go get your driver's license checked, you're not meeting that um, 2040 line you need to drive. Sometimes we can do a, a, an assessment. It's not 100% accurate, but we can see whether removing that cataract might have you reach a, a level that would be um, improved enough. Sometimes with the macular degeneration there, we know we're not going to get the levels back that we need to even with cataract surgery. So again, just address that. Have those questions at hand if a uh, cataract gets uh, diagnosed for you and you have AMD. Uh, as I mentioned, the optic nerve appearance also um, a risk factor. And again, that's been shown in several studies that eyes with these bigger cup-to-disc ratios, that's what we see in glaucoma. But even in patients that didn't have glaucoma, just had this bigger cup-to-disc or bigger optic nerve, um, had a reduced risk of wet AMD. So again, there's some mechanism perhaps we haven't identified why that's the case. But you can ask your eye care professional where you fall in that spectrum. Again, more in terms of modifying some of the lifestyle factors that you can change.
So smoking, um, absolutely the data on smoking is very, very strong that if you smoke, you have, um, uh, an increased risk of not only developing age-related macular disease, you have a highly increased risk of going blind, losing vision from it. So it's a very strong risk factor, and that has been shown across the board in every large epidemiologic study that's been done around the world, as high as a six times greater risk of developing macular disease and losing vision in smokers. Um, the risk is associated with current smoking. So when you start to... to um, you know, butt out and not smoke anymore, that risk begins to go down. It goes down slowly, but there's something about the actual act of current smoking, probably related to the very, very strong oxidant properties. You know, everything we do, we're trying to do an antioxidant regimen. Smoking is probably the biggest oxidant that we can throw into our system. So the data really is um, more than suggestive on smoking. So when people often ask me, Doc, what can I do today to make a difference? Stop smoking. I know it's hard. Most people who are still smoking at this age have heard from a lot of people for a lot of reasons for many years why they should stop, still haven't. I realize it's it's a powerful uh, addiction, but one from an eye health perspective, extremely worth trying to um, to climb on top of. Um, and again, I won't go through all the details, but in the nurse's health study, physician's health study, um, again, looking at current smokers, very high rate of uh, AMD in people who smoke. Um, so it's important, independent, and avoidable. So you, that's one thing we can stop. We think, as I mentioned, that the mechanisms, uh, the powerful oxidant effect, very harmful to the macula. Nicotine in itself, we, um, in animal models, has been shown to increase the severity and size of the choroidal neovascular wet uh, vessel process that occurs. So again, everything about active smoking um, leads to more difficulty. That lets us segue nicely into the antioxidant story. So I know it seems everywhere we go, we're getting bombarded with what we should take, bilberry, lutein, zeaxanthin, fish oils, you know, every type of berry known to man seems to be available in pill form. It's hard to know what we should choke back and in what quantities and will it make a difference. So we'll start with where we know the data. Um, and as uh, Dr. Small mentioned, um, really the vitamin C, E, beta carotene, and zinc were the big um, ones done in the ARED study, and those were shown to be positive. But we know there are multiple others. The alpha carotene, lutein, and zeaxanthin is a big one in eye health that we hear about. Um, selenium, copper, manganese, all of these part of um, what we're instructed to consider taking. So the reason it's so important to have these antioxidants is that the pathology of macular degeneration, as we talked about, we build up this debris. We start to not effectively clear our cellular debris. It builds up through a lifetime. Normally cells can come in and kind of scavenge that away. As we get older, we can't do that. And these harmful compounds land in the layer underneath the retina. Those are the drusen. But they start to induce this inflammatory problem. They're kind of the, the initiator of so much of the difficulty. And the way antioxidants may work is that they may actually scavenge or decompose or reduce the formation of these harmful compounds in the eye. So that's an important, um, again, modifiable thing we can do. So the ARED study, as you mentioned, showed um, absolutely that there was a decreased risk of um, progression of AMD and of vision loss from AMD in patients taking these supplements. Um, and whether it was zinc alone with antioxidants or um, the antioxidants and zinc together, there was a significantly uh, reduced risk of developing advanced AMD. Um, and the, the vitamins we've mentioned were C, E, beta carotene, and zinc, reducing the risk of advanced AMD by about 25%, uh, risk of vision loss by about 19%. So that's a significant um, 
portion of people, when you consider the burden of disease of how common AMD is, if we're doing that as a risk reduction across the board, we're impacting on a lot of people. Always worth mentioning, and Dr. Small may also mention that if you're a smoker, again, you cannot take the beta carotene. The high dose beta carotene that is found in these preparations was shown in two independent studies um, to cause lung cancer, increased risk of developing lung cancer and mortality from lung cancer if you smoke and take high dose beta carotene. So again, another good reason not to smoke, but if you are a smoker, make sure you get one of the formulations that does not have beta carotene. And most of the commercial formulations have replaced that with lutein. But double-check that. It's very, very important. It was also important from the age-related eye disease study to know that we don't recommend these vitamins for everyone. So if people had very small early, early signs of AMD, either no signs of macular disease or the earliest sign, a few drusen or pigment changes. We didn't get everybody started on this because their risk of progression was so low that these risk reduction numbers didn't impact on them. So we don't recommend that everyone and their cousin go out and start taking this. It's if you have evidence of AMD and that you need to ask again your eye care professional. Some people say, well, my mom and dad had it, so I'm going to start taking it now. No evidence to suggest that it's protective, actually. So you need to know, do I or don't I have signs of macular degeneration before going on this regimen? And these are high doses. You know, again, vitamins are are not um, inert compounds. We know that too much of certain vitamins may not be healthy. Um, so you need to make sure that you're, again, working with your eye care professional to know, should I be taking this or not? Um, but the doses were, were well worked out in the ARED study for those patients who were um, instructed to take them. But I'll just read out because it does, you know, some people say, oh, well, at 25%, that's pretty good. Will that help me day to day? Probably, yes, it will. And when you look at the number, so if you consider 8 million individuals um, in the states right now who are at risk of developing advanced AMD, if we have those patients on the AREDS formula, um, we are looking at 300,000 people over time avoiding advanced AMD and associated vision loss over the next five years. So it's a big number. It is a, a positive study and, again, worth doing. It's a cost-effective, fairly low-risk way of reducing uh, your risk. Um, and we mentioned the dosages. Again, a lot of people say, well, what about lutein? How come that wasn't in there? The real reason that um, lutein wasn't in the ARED study was there wasn't a commercially available form of lutein at the time the ARED study was designed. So now ARED 2 is running, again, sponsored by the National Eye Institute, your hard tax dollars at work, looking at the story with lutein, zeaxanthin, and the omega-3 fatty acids, which are the fish oils that, again, we're all being instructed to to gobble on a daily basis. Uh, this study's ongoing. It is fully enrolled now, several thousand participants across the country. Data probably won't be out until about, um, probably about another four or five years before that data is fully run. And it's going to hopefully come up with dose levels. As you know, if you go to buy lutein, you can get anything from 6 to 40 milligrams. Kind of hard to know where you should be in that spectrum. So this is hopefully going to clarify that. In the meantime, I always say pick a moderate amount. Around 10 milligrams is probably good. I, I think moderation for everything is uh, the lesson of the day. There have also been some recent studies that have showed folic acid and the B vitamins to be very important in women in particular in helping to protect against ARMD. Uh, so again, a good multivitamin that contains both of those, um, very reasonable thing to do. And then the dietary forms, obviously, of antioxidant, very, very important. Um, many studies have looked at the beneficial effect of diets that are rich in antioxidant fruits and vegetables, lower risk of disease, um, and that's been shown to be um, fairly consistent across the board. 
So again, lots of the leafy greens, fruits and vegetables. They have looked at lutein in dietary um, uh, components. Um, and um, definitely the lutein that you can get in the leafy green vegetables is important. One study did show that a 10 milligram dose of lutein was beneficial on um, visual function. Um, so fairly safe, I would think, to consider that as part of your regimen as well. I will just make a note as well. Most of the patients in the ARED study took both their AREDS formulation and a standard multivitamin like a Centrum. Uh, and there were no concerns with that. People didn't seem to uh, reach toxic levels or concerns. So you can do both, it seems, fairly safely and throw a fish oil in as well for, for good measure. Um, alcohol intake, again, a lot of sort of mixed data that some say, yes, if you drink this much, you'll have more difficulty. Some people feel it's protective. I think, again, in general, a moderate alcohol intake is not going to negatively impact um, your your vision or your risk of AMD. Um, one study did show a trend of higher risk if more than five drinks per day, but probably you're going to have a higher risk of a lot of things. Um, blurred vision is probably common for all of us with that level. Um, but if you're doing a moderate uh, sort of heart health type alcohol intake, which is a drink a day for women, two to three for men, you're probably not negatively impacting your uh, AMD profile at all. Um, and again, just kind of a mixed uh, bag of results from studies that have looked at this. But taken as a whole, um, alcohol intake probably does not have a large effect on the development of AMD. So again, moderation. Uh, obesity and physical activity, very important. Again, this is a tough one. We all, I mean, I talk the talk, but I can't remember the last time I put on my running shoes and went for a walk. But we can have a fantastic impact on our health, not just our eyes, but our overall general health. Um, there was a, a nice study that looked at vigorous physical activity three times a week, 25% reduction in the risk of AMD progression. So again, that's something simple. If you walk three times a week at a good pace for 20 minutes, you're doing a whole lot, not just for your maculas, um, but it really is important uh, to try and do that. And again, it's hard. Everyone leads, leads busy lives, and it always seems to be what goes to the back burner, but that's an important one. Also, two people with a high uh, body mass index do have a higher rate of AMD. They also relate to cardiovascular disease, cholesterol levels. So again, it's kind of the whole picture of how these things impact. Um, but if you do, um, if you are overweight, if your BMI is too high from what your doctor tells you, weight loss does lead to an improvement in cardiovascular risk factors across the board uh, and in AMD. So again, very important, modifiable. Um, sunlight exposure, again, the, the data has been a little mixed, though I would have to say, you know, theoretically, UV light is a, a powerful oxidant. So there are certain light-induced um, models of retinal degeneration that we excuse me, that we use in research. So although the data overall, when you look at the population studies, don't show a strong association between UV light and AMD, there have been mild associations. And if you're exposed, I think over the course of a lifetime, as we are in Southern California, to high UV levels, sunglasses are a good idea. I, I make my kids wear them. That's my youngest daughter uh, <laughs> making the point. Um, but just in general, good protection against UV light is, is worth doing. Medications, again, big area. And some of this really isn't modifiable. Sometimes if our blood pressure is through the roof, we need to have our blood pressure controlled regardless of what it might do to our maculas. So, again, good relationship with your primary care doc, reviewing what you're on and why, how you might modify that to, um, you know, maximize the protection to your maculas. Um, but there were some early studies showing a borderline association between the use of beta blockers, a common uh, blood pressure medicine, and macular disease. 
Um, aspirin was actually thought to be protective, a decreased rate of, of wet AMD. Uh, and some of the statins, which I know Dr. Small talked about, again, lower risk of AMD. We're not sure whether that's a, a direct effect on the macula versus the overall benefit of lowering your cholesterol. So again, just have a good dialogue with your caregivers about what you're on and why, and, and are they the best choices for you. Um, cardiovascular disease, we know there's a relationship, the plaque formation that can either occur in our carotid arteries as we age or in our uh, heart vessels are definitely increased uh, with AMD. Again, perhaps because a lot of those same risk factors are impacting on both um, diseases. But anything you can do to control your general cardiovascular health, better for your eyes. Many of those risk factors are one and the same. So you're not having to do extra. It's, it's a benefit on all, all sides if you're able to uh, get that under control. Um, high blood pressure, again, kind of mixed data, um, all in your handout. I won't go over it in great detail, but in general, controlling blood pressure is a good thing. Um, there were some studies early on in our treatment um, trials for macular degeneration that suggested that people with uncontrolled uh, high blood pressure were harder to treat, harder to manage the wet form of AMD. Uh, so do, um, do work very hard to have blood pressure in good control as well. Uh, dietary fat intake, um, again, probably modifying our, our eye disease through the same risk factor. So if, uh, if we're taking in a lot of dietary fat, likely to have high cholesterol, we're likely to have more of the cardiovascular risk factors that then again will be uh, contributing to our macular disease. Several studies suggesting that. Um, Vegetable fats are important. We've had a lot of information about the trans fats and a lot of the things to try and avoid, and I think we're getting much better educated on that, the foods that, that commonly hold them and how to avoid those. Um, the omega-3 story is good on cardiovascular disease and fatty acid intake as well. There's an inverse association if you take the omega-3 fatty acids. So those are the good kind, uh, the fish oils that you want to be taking. Excellent data on cardiovascular risk reduction. Um, again, the AREDS-2 study is going to give us the details on macular degeneration reduction. Um, but these are associations, again, modifiable, fairly easy to manage. Other things we can do, you know, high intake of fish is very helpful, two to three servings a week, very uh, protective on the cardiovascular risk front as well as eye disease. Nuts, apparently even one serving of nuts a week uh, decreases the risk of AMD progression. And I think that's important when you try and sift through all the, the dietary data especially that we are... You know, it's not, we're not asking people to eat nothing but nuts and salmon every meal every day. I think what we can do is modify our risk factor with pretty simple, um, manageable changes in our diet. So don't do red meat every night of the week. Try and mix it up a little bit. Go with lean chicken and fish a couple times. One serving of nuts, we can probably all manage that. I think sometimes we think that the dietary changes we have to make are so broad we never do it because it just seems to be too much. But we're not um, you know, saying that's what you have to do. I think it's moderate um, and variable um, dietary changes would be good. Uh, diabetes, interestingly, that I know that question came up in Dr. Small's talk as well. No significant uh, relationship between diabetes and AMD, uh, one way or the other. So that's good. But um, again, good good blood sugar control, very important in terms of all the other risk factors associated uh, with your general health. Um, hormonal factors are interesting. You know, we certainly as women, we all um, were very interested in the data that came out uh, a few years ago showing that the hormone replacement therapy that we'd all been taking religiously for so many years wasn't actually found to be protective against cardiovascular uh, risk. 
or cardiovascular events. And that was kind of devastating, not only because um, you'd been taking it for no definite benefit, not only trying to stop these hormones when you've been on them for years was pretty awful for a lot of people, and many people chose to remain on them for lifestyle reasons. Um, but there's a suggestion that hormones may be protective in the development of, of macular degeneration. So that, again, that's not saying run out and everyone hop back on hormone therapy, but it may be that some of these agents have different effects in different systems. Um, and there was... Um, a, a definite decrease risk of uh, AMD and wet AMD in women on um, estrogen therapy. So again, that's going to require a little bit more study. And again, it may be more um, in the AMD world that it's uh, impacting on your inflammatory factors, which again, we keep going back to is what we think of as a major contributor. It's not as much looking at the cardiac risk factor side of things, but treating more on the inflammatory side of things. So that's going to be explored, I think, a little bit um, further uh, as it relates to AMD. And inflammation, again, we've talked about a lot, the presence of these drusen and, and the inflammatory cascade that gets started, we think is really one of the major components of the etiology of AMD. And this really unfolded with the discovery of this complement factor H gene uh, some years ago now. Um, so the, the question that becomes, well, should we run out and get on anti-inflammatories? Is that what we should be doing instead of uh, some of these other things? And again, a lot of research still needs to be done on that, as it does on the genetics. So in terms of telling you what to do today in terms of reducing inflammation, we don't have definite um, guidelines on that, other than we know that controlling a lot of these other risk factors helps in general decrease inflammatory uh, reactions in, in your system. And the genetic studies, so we have known for years that we know family history plays a role in AMD. Um, we'd seen both in, in um, family studies with a high level of um, people involved in uh, with AMD in one family. Twin studies showed a very high concordance between um, twins having AMD. And then we've gone on to look at um, the the actual genes. And as Dr. Small mentioned, Many genes, we think, are involved in this. Not There isn't one that says, yes, you're going to have AMD. There are probably seven associated with those. There are probably several that also confer a protective effect. So you need to know if, you know, and I actually don't um, condone going out and getting genetic testing at this point because it doesn't change what we do right now. It is not altering our treatment strategies. It's not altering how we are going to tell you to not get this disease. So at the moment, I think we have to do a lot more work before we're giving you good information with that. And in my mind, that would include saying, yes, you carry a gene that confers risk. You also happen to carry a gene that shows a tremendous protective effect against AMD. So you have to look at all those. It's, it's a complex issue. And I think um, personally, I, I think we have a lot of work to do before we can give you good, meaningful information about the genetics of this disease. It's exciting that it's unfolding. It's happening quickly, uh, but we're not there yet. And as I mentioned, um, family studies, so even before we had any specific gene in mind, we saw that the risk of AMD among um, pa families of patients who had known AMD, 2.4 times higher. Um, wet AMD, three times higher uh, in, in family history cases. And siblings, 20 out of 81 um, affected patients had uh, AMD, whereas only one of 78 siblings in, in families that had no sign of AMD. Uh, so we really saw that there was a, a definite family history, and that we've identified for years. And then, as mentioned, we found uh, in 2005, four different groups almost simultaneously reported the finding of this complement factor H gene. But we've now gone on to find additional genes and, and the protective genes, as I mentioned. 
Um, and I think, it, you know, we, as I mentioned, we can't, as we stand here today, change our genetic makeup, but we sure can use that knowledge as, and as that day comes that we're able to use it more effectively. Um, you could look at something like, well, if I have this gene and I smoke, I'm really loading the deck against me keeping my vision through my lifetime. Um, if you don't carry the gene, you still shouldn't smoke, but there's um, sort of the mix of how we put together our genetic and our environmental and lifestyle factors. Um, you know, if you look at obesity and the complement factor H gene, about 11 times greater risk. So if you know you carry that gene, all the more reason to get your weight under control. So again, it's kind of stacking the decks in our favor as best we can in an environmental way against what hand we were dealt genetically. I'll move through that. So as I mentioned, um, a lot of people ask, should I be tested? Should my family be tested? I don't think so yet. There are a lot of people out there who are happy to take your money and give you a, a, a result on this. But again, I think until we can pin that result to something useful in terms of definite risk, um, family members, things like that, I, I would personally wait. It will come, and I don't think it's going to take very long, but we do need to have a little more data behind us. I think the future with genetics, we are going to be able to much better clarify the exact role of the genes in the disease. Um, we know that at the present time, um, none of our treatment strategies approach the genetic subtype that you have. So it's not going to change day to day what you're receiving in clinic right now. Certainly down the road, we're hoping that um, we will see uh, preventive um, medications, drugs, preventive strategies that can influence that genetic pathway and prevent the disease. And that will be incredibly exciting if we could do that. All right, so we're getting to the summary point, and the question is, are you confused yet? Well, probably. I know in reviewing all this data, it does uh, leave you a little bit uncertain, but let's, you know, take home close with um, what we know we can do. So the modifiable risk factors unquestionably confirmed in studies don't smoke, take antioxidants, uh, take omega-3s, have a heart-healthy diet with lots of vegetables, with lutein, and exercise. None of that's going to hurt you in any way. Um, the mixed effects of uh, sunlight exposure, medication use, and alcohol intake, again, I think still worth paying attention to. I think, as we talked about, having a good medication regimen, um, UV light block is something easy to do with a good pair of sunglasses, and moderate alcohol use, uh, all good. Um, and that we know that family studies suggest a clear genetic component, um, probably as well as an environmental one, and the inflammatory factors are being intensively studied and will likely lead to different therapeutic directions for us in the very near future. All right, I'll thank you and open up for questions. Thank you. That was, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Before we take questions, I want to mention we've got about... Ten minutes or so for your questions before we, the lunch is ready. Um, when you do go to lunch, please visit all the exhibitors. They're going to be there throughout lunch. And not only the ones in the courtyard, but in the room where you, right in front of where you registered, it says glaucoma. We have two really excellent low vision uh, people there also. So visit these things. It's a great chance for you to try out some of these devices and find out what services are available uh, to you. So uh, please be sure and do that. I'll just put in a plug for that as well. I don't think the exhibits are open after lunch. Is that right, Judy? So if, especially right. for the low vision ones where they have a lot of good hands-on center for the partially sighted is there, Braille. They're terrific. Don't miss them. Dr. Takeshta from the center is speaking this afternoon, but you won't have a chance to see the exhibit following his talk. So do try and get there. My, my question is about spinach. On the blue paper from Dr. Small, it says have it five times a week. 
He said seven times. Um, now, is spinach fresh or cooked? Is there a difference in the value of that? Well, I think spinach, um, however you can digest it most easily, is fine. The date on spinach, again, the leafy green vegetables in general, spinach, collard greens, um, all of the kale, all of these things are, are good. I think... Um, a lot of people can't manage spinach seven times a week. I think, however, you can ingest it is best if you're cooking it in a lasagna or having a salad. Those benefits are, are both good. Um, but I think even if you get in three servings a week, it's better than zero. <laughs> we have a question back here. One second. I can get to her. Hello. And again, thank you for all the wonderful information. Uh, a comment and then a question regarding uh, spinach, especially oxalic acid, which is in spinach. I used to have it like every day for a couple of weeks, and I developed bursitis in my shoulder, mm-hmm. and it was linked to the oxalic acid in eating so much spinach. So the temperament, the fact that you know, you don't want to OD on something that potentially can help you. Exactly. And I'll just jump in prior to your question. That is such an important point. And that's why I say everything in moderation. Because there are, you know, unexpected. Who would think, I've been good, I'm gobbling up my spinach. Who would think you then end up with a, a problem? So these are not inert compounds. And in my opinion, too much of anything is not a good thing. So I think a moderate approach is very important. We think, too, that there may be a, a curve associated with vitamin and antioxidant use, that we have a benefit to a certain point, which then may drop off or actually become a, a negative effect. So more is not necessarily better. And the, and the question is, and I just saw my regular doctor uh, in the last couple of weeks mentioning about the vitamins and being over 60 and having some other health issues, should we take the Centrum Silver, Costco Centrum Silver, or the regular one, which I believe still has lutein, and he suggested not to take anything that has more than 100% of the, I guess it's the RDA. Right, recommended daily. Comment on that. Thank you. Right. So the, the concept there is the recommended daily allowance um, for any given vitamin or or compound. it's a good question. So the, the AREDS formula, for example, is above the RDA by quite a bit. But they have followed in that cohort very carefully and have not determined uh, negative effects from that. But you're right. You have to look at that. So some people will take their AREDS formula. They'll take a multivitamin. They may take a lutein mix. I think you do. You really do have to see how much you're getting of everything. Um, again, it's hard to say for sure. Um, you know, we have a lot of information, say, on vitamin E. There were some concerns that too much vitamin E might be associated with an increased risk of mortality. The AREDS committee actually went back and looked at that very carefully because all of their patients were on the 400 IU um, and didn't find an association. But, again, you've got to sort of weigh that. And I, I encourage, as you did, to sort of sit down with your primary care physician really go through what you're on and try and minimize being too high above recommended allowances. So as far as omega-3 supplements, is there any amount that you recommend? Based on any data at the present time, no. Um, Again, the AREDS-2 is hopefully going to answer that for us. How much of this should we be taking? Um, At the present time, again, depending on the omega-3 that you look at, Some want you to have two capsules four times a day. Others are recommending one capsule a day. You know, barring any scientifically based data, I would go with the recommended amount on the particular formulation that you're taking. 
You mentioned the test that one could have for uh, cataract surgery and whether it would help if you have AMD. What is that test? And also one other comment. My doctor told me that the recommended requirement vitamins that's put on the labels is for 18 to 24-year-olds and have no bearing on people in, that are older. That's interesting. Okay, I'll, I'll tackle your first question first. So that question was, what is this test we do prior to cataract surgery? So it's um, it goes by two names generally, PAM, which is the potential acuity meter, or RAM, which is retinal acuity meter. And we do it in our retinal offices all the time. Whether general ophthalmologists have them, you'd have to check. But it's a very easy test. It basically consists of uh, putting on a pair of glasses and we then have a, a machine that allows us to place the target, the, a visual target, like reading a chart, through the cataractus lens. We land it on the macula. So sometimes we'll see your chart vision may be 2200. When we do this PAM or RAM test, you may show potential of 2025. That tells us, well, that's mostly cataract. So other times we'll say, you know, we did that and you were still 2200. Cataract surgery may not benefit the, the central acuity. It's not 100% accurate by any means, but it does give you a ballpark. And the cataract surgeons sometimes like to have that prior to making that decision. It's helpful for you as well. Um, and it, it just gives us one sort of more piece of information about how to, how to proceed. It's important, though, that cataract surgery also may benefit other things other than your central vision. So sometimes even if someone has a macula that's fairly advanced from AMD, if they have a really dense cataract, very little light is getting in, their, their peripheral vision may be affected. Sometimes it's worth considering it on, on that basis, too. Um, and then the second question was about the recommended daily allowances for vitamin use being uh, calculated on 18 to 24-year-olds and not for an older population. That, I have to be honest, I hadn't heard, so I'll have to, to look that up and let you know next year if I get invited back, because that it's a good point, though. They may not have, have calibrated all that for older individuals, and our metabolism is, is different. The way we uh, excrete or handle certain medications may be different, so I'll, I'll research that for you. If you have drusen, do you have AMD? Or if you have drusen and vision loss, do you have AMD? That's a good question. So when you read, if you open a textbook on macular degeneration, the definition is drusen and vision worse than 20 over 30. So there's sort of a feeling that if you're 20-20 and have drusen, you don't truly have macular degeneration. My feeling clinically is that that's splitting hairs a little bit. If, if you're 2020 and have drusen, I'm still going to monitor you. I'm still going to discuss lifestyle recommendations. I mean, unless I had a way to just get rid of them for you, I'm not going to change how I approach um, you clinically. Um, but that's sort of a, you're right, the definition usually involves visual loss. But the expectation over time is that probably those drusen will produce some visual loss, even if mild. That's all the time we have for questions, but thank you so much, Dr. Pleasure. Hawkins. Pleasure. Thank you. This is wonderful. This is great.